This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on PressBox Access. Prolific, thorough, trustworthy, and as Bill Parcells used to call him, relentless. Those are some words I think of when I think about Peter King. Peter's been one of the preeminent reporters covering the NFL for the past 40 years. He has written about, talked about, and analyzed everything about the massive growth of professional football in America. And he's here to talk about that and memorable moments from his distinguished career. Peter, I appreciate you joining us on PressBox Access. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Well, thanks, Todd. Good to be with you. And uh, I think one of the things that's fun about events like this is that because we are so often prisoners of the moment, we don't often sit back and think about our lives and our jobs. And I enjoy doing that. So uh, I'm happy you asked. Great, great. The Dean of NFL Reporters, do you have a, like, marked on your car when you drive around? I mean... A sign you carry. I have no idea what that means, but um, it's... I think it means you're old, Peter. Yeah, it's a nice... It's nice to think that, I mean, this year, this season, 19... I'm sorry, 2023 will be the 40th season I've covered the NFL. And so that's... When you think that the NFL's been alive for 104, I've covered more than a third of them. So it's kind of interesting to sit back and realize we don't usually do that, as I said. Uh, so it's cool to to give that some thought. Yeah, it's like you're an historian, right? I mean, think about it. One third of the history of the league, you, you know, you could just go up and pro football fame and just greet people. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of those guys too. So that's a cool thing too. Because when I was a kid, I was like anybody else. I love sports. Any, uh, So many, not anybody, but so many other people. I love sports. And I just wanted to be involved with sports. And so it's kind of cool that I've been able to uh, have a finger on the pulse of uh, this sport that's really become uh, America's game uh, over the years. And so it's it's been good to be able to follow it, the good and the bad, uh, over the last four decades. Well, you've certainly chronicled the absolute growth of the passion that people have for the NFL. You've done it on so many different platforms, now with NBC Sports, obviously, 29 years at SI, TV, radio, podcasts, a decade at a couple newspapers, member of the voting panel for the Hall of Fame since 92. But you mentioned your childhood, and this really is a long way since you and a friend used to write a newspaper as kids, right, in Enfield, Connecticut? I'm really fortunate 
probably a lot more fortunate than anybody who's listening to me. Because when I was in fifth grade, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And so it's, I was so fortunate because I started working at it uh, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. I loved reading newspapers. My dad was a huge newspaper reader. I grew up halfway between Boston and New York. And when I was in high school, in fact, in Enfield, Connecticut, I remember going to get the Boston Sunday Globe every week and sitting down and inhaling Peter Gammon's notes columns. Notes Mm -hmm. columns because I was a huge baseball fan at the time. And he was just starting out and I said, how incredible is this? That this guy gets one full newspaper page every week to just empty his notebook and to write about baseball. And I met, I mean, I've met Gammons quite a few times, talked to him a few times over the years, but a couple of years ago, uh, I was at Wrigley Field in Chicago just as a fan. And I saw Gammons there. He was there doing something. And I went up to him, reintroduced myself. He goes, oh yeah. And I said, uh, I just want to tell you something. When I was in high school, Uh, in Enfield, Connecticut, probably the most significant thing that happened to me, honestly, is that I was introduced to your notes column. I read it every week and I said, that's really what I want to do in whatever business I do. I wasn't even sure I was going to be a sports writer. When I went to Ohio University, I didn't write sports at all. I mean, I, I covered the women's softball team as a freshman when I was a freshman for the school paper. But then Sophomore, junior, and senior years, I never wrote one word about sports. Mm-hmm. So I thought that I was going to be a, uh, I thought I honestly, I said, you know, it'd be a cool job. I'd love to cover the state house for the Columbus Dispatch. <laughs> and seriously. We, we would have loved to had you, Peter. Seriously. <laughs> I would have loved it. I truly, I would have loved that. And, you know, and maybe one day uh, I could get to the Washington Post or something or a big, paper that you know but I never really thought of being a sports writer until I got a call from a fellow named Frank Hinchy who was the the new sports editor at the Cincinnati Inquirer in 1980 and he wanted to know if I wanted to be a general assignment reporter in the sports department I said hell yeah so yeah yeah he and he was tough but I really liked him he was my boss at a um at the Kentucky Bureau of the Cincinnati Inquirer where I was an intern. And so uh, anyway, but I didn't have to be a sports writer. I mean, it's been fun and I'm glad it worked out that way, but I could definitely have seen my life going in another direction. And I definitely could have seen myself covering politics or doing something for, you know, for a paper and who knows, a website because Hey, look, Todd, when we were kids, you know, we thought we'd be working for newspapers 45 years and retiring and, you know, having worked for newspapers our whole career. Yeah, it was like the mob. Once you got in, you were in. Yeah, yeah. And and (laughs) it just, life changed. And that's another thing I always tell these, these students. I said, you know, be flexible. And that's really my advice to young kids these days, because you just simply do not know whether you're going to turn into 
a great podcaster, a great TV reporter, a great reporter, but at the heart of it has to be your ability to connect with people and to be a really good reporter. And you learned that at Ohio University because your roots really for your career date to Ohio, just like the NFL's roots go back to Ohio. And you started out at Ohio University, like you said, not knowing if you're going to be a sports writer, but you learned the journalism skills that you needed. And then you end up going to the Cincinnati Enquirer in 1980, and you're spending five years there. So you have a Boomer Esiason story as, from his rookie year. Peter, you pick up Boomer Esiason at the airport? Well, yeah, it, it, it is a, it's sort of a... He got drafted, and you, pick, you go to pick him up. Doesn't the team pick him up? What is this? They're supposed to, but here's exactly what happens. The Bengals sent a guy the day he was drafted out to pick him and Pete Koch up in a limo. I have a two-door Volkswagen Rabbit, and I find out the flight he's in on, and I go out and I wait at the gate, and they come in, Pete Koch and Boomer Esiason. And I said, <laughs> yeah, Peter King, I'm with the Inquirer. I'm here to pick you up. So I take him out, and we even see the guy who's there to pick them up, and I have him go out a, a door that's not directly where this guy is, so he won't see them and they won't see him. And I just walk out to the car and, and there's Pete Koch. He's about 6'5", 290, defensive end. And uh, Boomer, who's big, but he's not 6'5", 290. And so obviously Boomer is going to fold himself into the back seat. So he does so. And as soon as uh, the door closes, he goes, well, welcome to the effing NFL. <laughs> and uh, and he always kids me when we're together now that he always introduces me as this is the guy who picked me up from the airport in a uh, microscopic car, and it's <laughs> it happened. Yeah, and, and you also didn't you also help him learn the playbook? <laughs> well, one time I did a story with him. I was at SI, and I did a story with him when he was. Uh, they were playing Washington, and Matt Millen was the veteran linebacker for Washington. And Boomer had said he's, the, he's, he, he's incredibly hard to game plan for because he's unpredictable. You watch tape, and it's just so different and all that. And I wrote about this. I quizzed him on his game plan on Saturday night. I would give him the formation and play call and... He would say, okay, here are my keys. I'm looking at this, this, and this. So that was really kind of a fun thing. But you could do that with Boomer. He just, <laughs> you know, I, it, the least surprising event of my NFL coverage career is watching Boomer Esiason get into TV and radio and make his living post-career in that way. Because, I mean, how about this, Todd? I you know, the team I walked into, the two of the three or four biggest stars were Boomer Esiason and Chris Collinsworth. Have there ever been two guys made to do team me who played football more than those two guys? Exactly. That was the yeah. whole locker room that I walked into as a young reporter. Boomer would have the reporters over to his locker almost every day and just go on and on. And then he would say, you guys have enough? Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, well, those, right. those, those, were, those were the days. Uh, but, you know, those guys, when I was a rookie beat reporter in 1984, the, the dorm at Wilmington had one or two pay phones and there's whatever, 80 guys, 90 guys on that team. So the pay phones were never free or never available. And I had a room, I had a phone in my room. So the guys who were smart would understand that the, the guys from the post and the inquirer used to live at training camp had phones and you should make friends with them so you can use their phones at night. So Boomer and Collinsworth, they, they, you know, they, they built up a pretty good phone bill on the good graces of the Cincinnati Inquirer. So Peter, every day of your very first training camp as an NFL beat reporter, you're standing next to one of the all-time NFL legends, Paul Brown, and just soaking up knowledge, right? Every day. And it was, you know, as I say, it's such a great regret of mine that I didn't walk back to the, to the dorm where, you know, on the first floor of the dorm where the very few members of the media had rooms. Uh, I'm, I'm just kick myself that I didn't just sit there and spend 10 minutes writing down what he said that day or, or things. But yeah, that was a tremendous influence on my career. Yeah, me too. Cause I, I started in 1989 um, on the Bengals beat and had the same experience with Paul and wish I had done the very same thing. Cause yeah. it's Paul Brown. For you God's know, sake. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So a year later, you end up in New York and you've got the Giants as a beat for Newsday. And you worked there from 85 to 89. The Giants had this coach, Bill Parcells, who's coming into his own. That whole team is. Bill Belichick's a defensive coordinator. Phil Simms, quarterback. Lawrence Taylor is the defensive star. So you're there the very first few days. It's around 7.15 in the morning. You're in the coffee room at training camp. And this new coach that you're going to be covering, Bill Parcells, walks up to you and says what? Well, I'll preface what he says by saying that there were 19 newspapers in 1985 that covered the New York Giants every day. 19? 19. <laughs> From Hartford to New Haven and Bridgeport and Greenwich and <laughs> Rockland County, New York, and Westchester County, and then all the way through New Jersey, all the way down to the Asbury Park Press, and the New York Daily News, and the New York Post, the New York Times. And I'm covering the New York Giants for a paper called Newsday, which was based on Long Island, that the vast majority of people who played and coached for the New York Giants never, ever saw. So I was just some schmo coming on <laughs> to cover the team. Uh, somebody who, who basically was, you know, they, they, you know, chewed through these beat people all the time. And so <clears throat> I show up and I had asked my wife, who was tremendous, uh, you know, was just really good about this. I said, look, what I would like to do in my first training camp is I'd like to get a room up near Pace University in Westchester County, New York, Pleasantville, New York. I'd like to just get a room for the summer 
and I just want to get up at 6.30 in the morning, go over to camp, sit in the media room, be the first one there, and then be the last one to leave. And I just want people to be able to see me and get to know me. Right. So most, most of the reporters, there wasn't anything to do until 10.30 maybe or quarter of 11 most days. And so they wouldn't come in. They weren't coming in until later. But I was there every morning by 7.15 and there was a common coffee room where there were coffee, donuts, and all the newspapers. And you could go in there and get coffee, but then you had to go back to the press room and sit there and wait for the day's activities. And after two or three days, I had introduced Parcel, took myself to Parcells the first day. But then like the third or fourth day, I'm getting coffee and I say, hey, Bill, how you doing? And he goes, who the bleep are you? <laughs> and like, I, I said, well, I introduced myself. I'm Peter King. He goes, yeah, what, what in the world are you doing here? What's, I said, Bill, I, you know, there's 19 papers that cover this team. I'm determined to make an impact and to be good. And so I just want to get to know everybody as best I can. And even just this little interaction right here, it's something that hopefully, you know, I can build some relationship with you. Mm -hmm. So he just shook his head and walked out of the room. And, <laughs> but that is how I treated that, especially that first year. And so, yeah, I, I worked pretty hard at it. Well, he gave you the nickname Relentless. Yeah, he, he did. But he, I worked pretty hard at it and we had our moments, but one thing he did really appreciate was work. And he used to tell me, I covered the team for four years. And at one point he told me, hey, listen, if you ever really need something, uh, you know, meet me in my parking space at 545 in the morning, thinking that, mm. oh, he'll never do that. Uh, but I did it five or six times. True. And one time uh, he asked me to come up to his office and we sat in his office for 45 minutes just talking. And one thing about Parcells that I thought was really interesting is that he understood and he knew how important, at least in those days, people who covered the team were. And every Thursday night, uh, he would have this session at about six o'clock. I remember I used to tell my wife, hey, on Thursdays, I'm probably not going to be home till 7.30 or 8 because Parcells comes down and he sits in the room and he'll stay as long as anybody wants and answer any questions you want as long as it was wow. totally off the record. Can't imagine that today. Yeah, it just wouldn't happen. In fact, there is a coach in the NFL uh, who's young, who asked me recently, who just got the job recently, and who asked me, do you have any advice for me? And I told him the story of Parcells. And he said, wow, that's interesting. And, did, and he didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, but, right, right. But right. I just think sometimes, <laughs> and everybody said, well, how can that benefit a coach? Well, very simple. In those days, there were two running backs on the team. Joe Morris and George Adams. And 
Joe Morris had a huge year in 1985, but the Giants drafted George Adams and they wanted it to be a job share. And Morris was very pissy about it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, but anyway, so we would say, why would you do this? And he would tell us basically all of the facts as he saw them with the two running backs and the fact that it's very hard in the physical world of running the football in the NFL. Joe Morris was five foot nine. And it was going to be very hard for them to ensure that he could stay healthy the whole time. And, and George Adams was a bigger guy. Uh, he's Jamal Adams' dad. And he built very much like, they're built very much like each other. Big, bruising, very physical guys. And mm -hmm. so, but, so you get to know that so that then when you're sitting down to write about Morris being all ticked off instead of saying, oh, he has every right to be ticked off, at least you have the other side of the story that you want to why it's happening. You might agree, you might not agree, but whatever, at least right. you understand why things like that are happening. So were these meetings, were these meetings on Thursday night, were they off the record? All off or? the record. All off the record. And, he, and one of the guys who was one of the beat guys, he banned, Bill Parcells banned this guy from the meetings after uh, he saw too much in the paper that he felt that this guy had written that was off the record. So he said, I'll do it, but I'm not going to do it with this guy in the room. So you could build trust by keeping off the record, off the record. Yeah, but also there were many times where I remember several of us would, would wait and after a press conference would say to Bill, hey, Bill, I know this is all, you talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but this is now an issue we got we to gotta write about. And he would, he would understand he would understand. But it also was funny because at one time, the Giants at the time were kind of a rising team. Newsday asked me to, to write about Parcells, the Jersey guy, uh, because he was born and raised, you know, a few long spirals from Giants Stadium. So uh, a, a few, I mean, many. But he wasn't very far away, a few miles away. But... Anyway, I asked him one time, I said, hey, can I ride to work with you one day? And he thought about it and he said, yeah, be at the end of my driveway at five o'clock in the morning and blah, blah, blah. Uh, just wait for me there and whatever. So I, I did. I met him there and, and we rode to work and he drove me past his high school football field and he drove me past the bowling alley where he used to set pins. And, <laughs> and you know, he went and stopped and got coffee and got all the newspapers, uh, the local papers. And I, he always used to say, I don't give a bleep what you guys write. I don't pay any attention to that stuff. And I laughed at him this day because he sat there for about 20 minutes with his coffee in the car with the car idling reading every word that everybody wrote. <laughs> and he had like five or six papers and he went through every one, you know? They always do. They right? all do. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like to cover Lawrence Taylor as a beat reporter on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, was he accessible? Did he like dealing with the media? I mean, we know what he was like as a player, but 
But on a day-to-day basis as a reporter, how did you find that working relationship? We were basically the dirt on the bottom of his shoe. You know, he, he didn't care about us. Or I don't care that he didn't care about us. But, you know, occasionally he would talk, but he had no interest in cultivating any sort of relationship or in talking for feature stories or anything like that. I really, in a lot of ways, I mean, he was just an incredible person to cover because, you know, he, he obviously was an incredible player, but he also, he was also such, to me, an admirable player because I saw him play hurt so many times. I saw him play with one arm in a game and get two and a half sacks against the Saints hmm. uh, when he could only use one arm. And afterwards, how much pain he was in in having to uh, get help in taking his uniform and his pads off and wincing. I saw him uh, after a game in Buffalo one time. Uh, it was one of those strike games in 1987 where he came back and crossed the picket line and and he played offense and defense. He played tight end that day. And the wow. Giants still lost the game, but he played his rear end off. He got seven holding calls on the guy across from who was a truck driver from Illinois. And uh, he got seven holding calls against him. And uh, at the end of the game, he had to get separated from the guy because he said he was going to gut gouge his eyes out. Um, but, but at the end of that game, he played so hard that Wellington Mara came up to him and hugged him. And I heard what he said to him. He goes, that's one of the most unforgettable games a giant has ever played. Thank you. And, and that was Taylor. He, you know, he just gave it all so that all the other stuff you could take, you know, all the other stuff you could, you could handle. And I, probably the story that really helped me get to Sports Illustrated from Newsday was uh, one of the years I covered the team, Taylor got suspended for the first four games of a season uh, for failing a drug test. And I got the story on a Sunday night and I wrote it. It was in Monday's paper. And the Giants and the league were not going to announce it until Monday. And so I broke it in Newsday. And, uh, and that was uh, kind of, for me anyway, a bit of a momentous thing. And, and Taylor, really, there was so much about him to be admired, but there's also part of it that, you know, he didn't, a lot of people he didn't treat well. And I, you know, he was a great football player, uh, but uh, I was, yeah. He wasn't helping the poor in Calcutta. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I never knew Lawrence Taylor. Like, right. I would doubt if I saw him today, he would even remember me, even though hmm. I was around him almost every day for four years, four yeah. seasons. But it's a, who cares? That doesn't matter. But uh, he was... Yeah, you're not there to make friends. No. You know. No. And so, you're there you to know, try to get access, get information, and write it for the fans who want to yeah, know what's going father, on. Yeah, my father... Hey, look, when I was a kid in the 60s, growing up in Connecticut, the Giants were my dad's team, so they became my team, you know? 
And so we'd watch every game on Sunday. And when I got this job, man, my father, who unfortunately died after just one year I covered the team, uh, my father was so thrilled. And he goes, oh, my God, you get to be around these guys. You get to do all this. Yeah. And I just said, hey, Dad, Dad, I said, those days are over. Like, I don't go in the press box and say, man, I hope the Giants win today. I go, I go into the press box and say, man, I hope I write the best story of anybody sitting here. And I hope I break some news today. I said, that's mm -hmm. what this life is about. It's not about cheering for your team. Right, and, right. And it's, isn't it funny that, I mean, a lot of people really think that way. And I think one of the reasons, Todd, they think that way is that they hear people on the radio and TV Basically, and I guess some people who are columnists, I don't know, but they hear these people saying, oh my God, it's, well, you, you know, we're, we're playing awful or, you know, yeah. and all this stuff. And, and I don't know, that was never, that was never my thing, you know? Yeah. We weren't we guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Well, you break that story on Taylor, you know, the cocaine abuse. And like you said, Sports Illustrated seemed to take notice. And Mark Mulboy reaches out to you. You're 31 years old, 1989. And Sports Illustrated brings you aboard. And they want you to do what you were doing. And that was, you were doing these notes, Sunday notes. You were covering the league at a time. And a lot of people weren't really covering the entire league. Yeah. How do you think that helped you transition into the next phase of your career? Well, you're right. There weren't a lot of people who were doing that at the time. John Clayton was doing it. He might have still been in Pittsburgh or he, you know, he maybe was in Seattle by then or Tacoma. Gary Myers was doing it in Dallas and then later at the Daily News. And, you know, there are other people. At, as a matter of fact, Adam Schefter, I think, did it in Denver, too, at the time when he was covering the the Broncos, but there weren't a lot of people who were writing notes columns, particularly year round. And I started doing it at Newsday. And, uh, and so it's, it was one of those things that I just loved. It was really my cup of tea because it was a lot. I kind of modeled myself and tried to be like Gamets and tried to get to know a lot of people in the league who just by covering the Giants, I wouldn't know. So, you know, it was really good training for what was to come at Sports Illustrated. So how did you do that? I sound like my children when they say, how did you do your job back then, Dad? No internet, no cell phones. There's just a good old-fashioned landline telephone. How did you do your job in those days? Well, the one thing I remember telling people at Newsday was, if I'm going to do this job and really get to be good at covering the NFL per se, I got to get to know a lot of people around the NFL. So I remember, I don't know, 86 or 87, 80, I forget, one of those years. 
uh, I went to 49ers training camp for three days. And I spent 45 minutes one day with Montana, spent time with Ronnie Lott. Um, And so, you know, you get to know a lot of people if you just simply show up. Because, you know, Todd, as you know, in 1988, it's different than 2023. Um, If a newspaper shows up at 49ers training camp, in 2023, well, okay, good. You get to go to the press conferences and maybe afterwards you can get one sidebar question with Kyle Shanahan. But it's just not the same as, right. as it was. And really, I grew up, honestly, in the golden age of covering the NFL. Absolute golden age because uh, if you just showed up, uh, I mean, I went to Steelers training camp when I was... Uh, in Cincinnati that one year I was there and it was unbelievable to go to Steelers training camp and to, I went, went and sat in Mike Webster's room for an hour between two-a-day practices and interviewed him. But anyway, I think that just leads me to say that all of the people who really want to cover the NFL these days, I feel bad for them because it's very hard to do it kind of uh, using the base like we used to do it because you were able to get to know people on every team. And especially mm-hmm. in 1989, when I went to, went, went to SI, remember, you know, if SI and ESPN showed up the same day, both of them got treated very well. It wasn't like now where... TVs get all the advantage and SI, you know, doesn't get nearly the advantage it got 30 years ago. Uh, I remember showing up in, it was either 90 or 91 to cover a Cowboys game for SI and Michael Irvin saw me and he goes, hey, we're in a Sports Illustrated game this week. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and so. He recognized it. Yeah. (laughs) That does not happen now. Well, you said you said showing up. It's like Seinfeld said, half a life is just showing it up. It is. But, but you have to have the dedication to show up, but you also have the dedication to, as our friend Jeff Hobson says, make a call. Yeah. Pick up the phone. Yeah. And I would love to have seen your Rolodex back in those days because didn't you like to call like five people a week that you had never spoken I, to? That was my big thing. Every week that I wrote the notes column when I was at Newsday, I wanted to talk to multiple people. I forget whether it was five. I'm sure many weeks it was. But I remember one week, the 46 defense, I spent 40, probably 46 minutes on the phone with Buddy Ryan, who I'd never met before. And I, my, the lead of my Sunday notes column was on Buddy Ryan and how did he invent this defense and what was the key to it and all that stuff. And it was just a different thing that, I wanted to make sure that every week there was somebody in my column who I didn't know. And I think mm-hmm. that that really is one of the things that that had great meaning for me later in my career. I remember in early in my TV years, there's a rising star in the NFL office named Roger Goodell. And I got mm-hmm. to know him. And every Saturday, I'd, uh, in I think starting in about 
2001, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 2000, I was doing uh, the Sunday morning CNN football show. And CNN used to have a Sunday preview football show every week. And so every Saturday, I'd call Roger Goodell. I knew he was, you know, was sitting at the right hand of Paul Tagliabue and was <laughs> knowing what was going on. So, so you figure out what people are significant and you try to get to them in four relationships and some of them pan out as big stars, some don't, but you know, if you don't, if you don't sort of test the waters, you'll never know. Well, you worked throughout those 29 years of Sports Illustrated, you know, showed the type of trust and access you were able to gain. People would talk to you, you know, and this notes column became this thing, this Monday morning quarterback. Yeah. And not only that, but like when you were reporting from games, you would, you would take people to places, take readers to places that they just, Never got to go. You always seem to find a way to be with somebody after a game, for example. Well, that was the benefit of working for SI, honestly, Todd. You know, and look, part of it was my ability, I think, to do everything in my power to say, uh, I'm going to make sure that I get Jerry Rice alone somewhere for three, even if it's only three questions. I did not want to use the press conference stuff. <laughs> I just, I just was opposed to that. Unless somebody said something outrageous in a press conference, I very, very rarely use that stuff in what I wrote. And I think the other part of it was that I spent a lot of time, you know, I remember in 1995, I spent a lot of time in that off season. There was one story I really wanted to do. I thought it was a white whale in our business. And that was, I wanted to spend a week inside a football team. And I wanted to do that without somebody saying every five minutes, now this is off the record. You can't use this. You get, because I went in and I asked, I probably asked 15 coaches. I said, I want to see everything. So if you're not confident in what you guys are doing as a team or an organization, you're probably not going to want me to do this. Right. But at the end of the day, Mike Holmgren of the Packers, they were a rising team. Favre was just getting good. And they let me do it in a week. Uh, they were playing the Minnesota Vikings. And Holmgren stood in front of his team early in the week and said, guys, it's Peter King. Uh, he's going to be around us. Uh, I'm giving him access to the team and blah, blah, blah. I can sit in meetings, everything. And so, I mean, that was an incredible experience because that, that year, Favre was just exploding onto the scene. And I was actually at his house twice, two nights that week. I, and I kept thinking to myself, this guy is unbelievable. He's never tired. And little did I know that Favre at the time, it was hooked on Vicodin. <clears throat> and at the end of the year, it would, you know, he had to go into rehab. So I ended up, one of the great things about doing that story uh, is that at the end of the year, Favre told me the entire story and how it happened. And 
he told me the night before he was going into rehab. And that's the only thing that anybody heard from him for six weeks was my story on Favre going into rehab. Peter, why do you think he told you? Well, because that year, luckily, Holmgren had given me access and I hung out in Favre's house until all hours, like two nights. And, you know, Favre is a, Favre was a really funny guy because he would, I remember this one night we were watching Son of Flubber, the movie on whatever, either HBO. <laughs> Let me picture this. Wait a minute. You and Brett Favre are sitting there watching Son of Flubber. That's right. That's right. And, and I fall asleep on the couch and, and I had a hole in one of my socks. And so then every time Favre would see me after that, he would say, hey, you got the holy socks on today or, you know, that kind of stuff. But I, I think, Todd, honestly, I think he, he picked me because uh, that story was the first, there was a lot of Favre in that story because they beat the Vikings 38-35 that week. And that was the the first game I think everybody started to say, wow, Favre is, you know, the way they would talk about Mahomes now. Favre might be the best quarterback in this game, you know, and or he has a chance to be. And so I would write about him a lot. And every time I would go in and spend some time doing stuff with the Packers, I'd hang around and be around Favre. So I don't know. I mean... Over the years, you really have to weigh the balance to of how close you get to a guy. Um, I don't even I don't know this now, but um, you know I'm sure that with Favre's current troubles, I'm sure that he he wishes that I would write some very nice stuff about him based mm-hmm. on the fact that I was very close to him for a long time. But obviously, you know, the news is the news. And that's how I always treated it anyway. Right. I think, I think those kind of relationships are important, but you always have to be careful that you don't go too far. How do you balance that? Because, you know, there are times when people will criticize you. Oh, he's too friendly to the league or he's too friendly to stars like Favre and Brady yep. and Manning. And how, do, how did you balance that? and know that you were doing the right thing? Or did you ever feel like you crossed the line? You know, I can look back at things with regrets. uh, And I look back at some things with regrets, but I, I can always say that, you know, there's a scene in the, in Spotlight, the movie that's about the Boston Globe breaking the story about, um, the priests in the greater Boston area molesting so many young boys. Yeah, great movie. Great movie. And there's a scene late in that movie of the Michael Keaton character who I think is the city editor at one point, but now he is running the Spotlight team, which is the independent investigative arm at the Boston Globe. And the one of the sources says, you know, we told you guys all about this. You knew all about this, whatever, six or seven years ago. And you ran the story small on an inside page and you gave it no credence. You didn't look into it. You didn't follow up. 
you did nothing with it. And so that's why we don't trust you to do the right thing now. And everybody sort of looked at Michael Keaton, you know, who at the time made the decision to not uh, play the story up. Right. And Michael editor, Keaton, right. who went to BC high school, was a Catholic boy. Uh, and basically, he looked at everybody and said, that's my fault. I, I made a mistake. You know, Todd, I've made a lot of mistakes in my career. A lot. And the only thing I know how to do is what my father always used to teach me. And that is, if you make a mistake, stand up, admit it, correct it. That's what you have to do. And you've done that, Peter. You did it when, the, you know, you, you said I made a mistake on the Ray Rice story, the domestic violence story in 2014. Yep. You did it with the Flategate. You actually went to SI, went to Sports Illustrated at the time and said, I, I am willing to resign because of the mistake I made in reporting on Deflategate. The, the Deflategate thing, you know, that's one of the things that I, I really, and it isn't that I don't want to think about it because you should think about your mistakes. But I know exactly to this day the mistake I made I trusted somebody. The, 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 the story was Chris Mortensen reported that 11 of the, I think 11 of the 12 footballs had been deflated more than two pounds per square inch, which was significant. Uh, it, it, you know, it would really make the football a lot softer if you deflated it by two pounds. But, but anyway, so uh, Chris Mortensen reported that and late that day, I think he did it on a Monday morning. And then by late in the afternoon, I wrote a story confirming Mortensen's report. And I know exactly what I did wrong. The person who I called as my second source on that story was wrong, has never admitted he was wrong, and uh, was wrong because because he didn't take direct knowledge of what exactly had happened. But I'll believe till the day I die, he got it on hearsay evidence. And I assume that the only way he would know this is by knowing it straight from the horse's mouth. But that's, it doesn't matter how I got it wrong. I got it wrong. I made a mistake and I should have. And look, if they had said, we accept your resignation, that wasn't a show thing by me. Absolutely, I would have quit. And, uh, you know, I guess in some ways, I'm fortunate that, that I, I didn't lose my job. But if I had lost my job, I would not be in any way bitter at SI because <clears throat> that is a big mistake to make to confirm a story and the biggest story in sports and your role. It sounds like it still gets to you, Peter. Yeah, yeah of course, yeah. because I, I made a mistake on my beat that was a huge mistake. And I think that to this day, I, 
it's it's actually, even though I have tremendous regret over it, in other ways, I'm happy that it happened because it has made me a lot more uh, thorough, especially about stories of great import the way that one was. Well, I really admire the fact that you're willing to talk about that. And, and I agree with you. We all make mistakes. It's how you react to that mistake. You know, I've made mistakes as a reporter and got called out on them. We all have. You certainly made way less mistakes than the great stories you did and the great work you did. And I think the thing that matters is that the work has always mattered to you, the journalism. And which is why you're willing to say, you know, I screwed that one up. Because it's about the work. It's not about the reporter himself or herself. In my opinion, Todd, that's the whole thing. Like, I, here I am, I'm sitting here getting ready for my 40th year covering the NFL. And my whole thing is I'm trying to think of new ways to do stuff in my column that are going to resonate with people. My column is going to be shorter in words in 2023 than it has been the past two or three years. And it might be, might have more sort of video or or sound elements than it's had before. I'm still, we're still determining that, but I'm trying to meet people where they are. Rather than just say, well, hey, listen, I write an 11,000 word column. If you want to read it, great. If you don't want to read it, that's great too. Whatever. But this is what I do. That would be foreign to what I'm telling young students now. And what I'm telling young students is you better be able to be versatile and to be able to adapt to the times that you live in. And honestly, Todd, there are going to be a lot of people. There are going to be some. There are going to be a lot of people, and there won't be many young people who are going to read 11,000 words about the NFL. Right. So why not try something to meet them where they live? Well, you certainly have never been afraid to change and adapt. I think, you know, in 2013, they took Monday Morning Quarterback, and they made it its own website at Sports Illustrated. They still had editorial control, but... You know, it was a thing. It was a separate thing. And you also provided a lot of opportunities for young journalists at that time, which I think is fantastic. Like you saw the landscape and said, you know what? Things are changing. We've got young, talented people that can come in and help those things change for the better. Well, one of the things I always felt, Todd, is that in, at least in my opinion, I think that traditionally that the bigger beats at places like Sports Illustrated and big newspapers and ESPN have gone to veteran people who've done the job for a long time. And I thought at at SI, they basically gave me in 2013 a salary cap to hire X number of people. And they said, you've got X number of dollars that you can go out and hire uh, people. So I hired younger, sort of less noted people. But anyway, my whole point is that 
I'm not sure that if you hire somebody who's covered the league for 10 years and who's 36 years old and who you have to pay a little bit more to, I'm not sure that they're going to be better than the 26-year-old person who's incredibly hungry, who I tell, said, you, your, your future is up to you. You know, and so, I mean, Robert. Well, that's who you were, right? At 31, yeah. when SI hired you, that's, you were young and hungry. Yeah. And you had, what, five or six years around yeah. the NFL? That's, they took a chance on you. They did. And you proved that that chance was worth well, it. Well, I hope so. And look, all these people who we hired, they're all really, I, I mean, I'm just so proud of all of them. Uh, but the one thing that I think they all have in common is yeah. that, they're self-starters. And that is so incredibly important in this job because in order to distinguish yourself, you can't just wake up in the morning and say, well, got to go cover this press conference. Here we go. Another day. You got to say, damn, what am I doing today to be better than the guy who's sitting next to me? Well, that's a spirit you took from Sports Illustrated over to NBC in 2018. It's a spirit that has you on all these different platforms, TV, radio, podcast, thinking about trying to change your writing. And a spirit that goes back to, I'll close with this, in 1979, you're an intern for the Associated Press. You're in the Netherlands. And you're in Amsterdam like a month. And there's a Three shipwreck. Months. Three months. There's a shipwreck. You don't even really speak the language. I don't. You're trying to do your job, and you found a way to go cover that story. That's what it's all about, right, Peter? Look, this is weird because I, yeah, you know, there was no sports involved in this internship. But when I left Ohio University, they have a great program. They give out, I don't know if they still do it, but they gave out 10 foreign internships that, you know, to, to uh, seniors leaving school. And so I was assigned to Amsterdam. And so this one day, the shipwreck happened in Rotterdam. I bet I was two or three weeks into the job. And they said, you got to go to Rotterdam and cover this shipwreck. And I didn't, you know, obviously I had to find out where Rotterdam was. I looked on a <laughs> map. I took the train there. It was maybe 10 o'clock in the morning and they say, call us by four o'clock and you can dictate a story. And I think 44 men died. And I just found a couple of people who I could piece together a couple of quotes from. And, you know, I stayed there for a couple of days covering it. But how invaluable was that? How invaluable was that experience? Getting plopped down into the middle of a country where you don't speak the language and working there for three months and going to cover things. And just uh, those are the kind of things that really help in journalism that I, there's no way I would have ever had the career that I had without those three months in a foreign country, knowing nothing about the people or anything about it. And just really getting to uh, understand that Reporting is reporting, even if it, it's hard to find somebody who you can make yourself understood to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you always have that notebook in your back pocket as a young reporter, and you still carry that, 
that idea to this day. And I, I think after all these years of covering the NFL and being on the front lines and being on a helicopter with John Elway or in the limo with Steve Young or behind the scenes with whoever it might be, uh, that's the type of adventuresome curiosity that we need in the business. And I really admire the fact that, uh, that you're trying to nurture that with young journalists and pass on the torch in a way. I appreciate it, Todd. Thanks a lot. It's been been fun to to talk to you and to relive some of those days. Well, you said you hoped your professional tombstone says he was fair, and you've been very fair and generous with us, with your time and your stories. And Peter, I really really appreciate this. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Todd. Have a great have a great time, and good luck to you. And let's stay in touch. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.